Alex, welcome to Validated. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited. Yeah, this is kind of a strange conversation for us because you guys are, of course, a Polygon project. We are. We are. And I'm very grateful that you guys are so gracious to have us on. Yeah, definitely. There's two reasons why I wanted to have this conversation. The first is Deepin is obviously yep. a fascinating and interesting category. Mm-hmm. The second is you guys actually use Helium for part of we do. how the network works too. So like, let's just start at the beginning. Yeah. What is Demo? How'd you guys get the idea? How are you using Helium? And then we'll, we'll get into why you built on Polygon. <sighs> Try to keep that one short. A lot of questions there. <laughs> Demo is building a decentralized and open connected vehicle platform. So what does that mean? Well, It starts that the auto industry is very antiquated and fragmented. The auto industry itself, if you imagine the process of buying and selling your car, probably dealing with the paper title, faxing it places, the financer doesn't have the same information that the used car marketplace does, and your insurance company is in its own walled garden. Uh, All of those players have no shared ledger, no way of actually understanding what's going on with an individual vehicle, whether it's in good working condition, how the driver has driven it. So our goal is to actually create a platform where all of those parties can have the same set of shared information about a vehicle and use that to make informed decisions and help consumers, whether that's helping them get a better rate on their car insurance, helping them get a better price for their car, or just making the flow of information, let's say, between you and your car and your garage a little bit more seamless for maintenance. We started on this journey about two years ago. We have firsthand experience in the IoT space and the auto industry, the mobility space, and kind of dealing with this fragmentation. And in addition to that, auto industry experience had a ton of experience in crypto and had seen how that fragmentation in those walled gardens were broken down in the crypto space with DeFi, you know, with Ethereum first, and then a whole bunch of others like Solana who said, look, you can take banking and payment processing and all of these things, move it on chain, give the world a shared ledger shared state machine. So we started this journey really trying to solve that problem in the IoT space and with vehicles. We were very much inspired from the get-go by Helium. Mm. Um, Helium was to us like the first major application outside of the finance world that blockchain just made a ton of sense for in the telecom space. So um, we had started just by putting out hotspots ourselves, really enthused by the project. Yeah. This is when they were their own blockchain too, before they were on Solana. And we realized what a powerful mechanism, A, the token incentive was to get people involved and invested in the project, and B, how useful the blockchain was in terms of creating that kind of open openness for the project itself. So we decided to adapt their model to the auto world. We got started in August of 2021, and it's actually only very recently that we've released the first hardware device that leverages the Helium network. But um, it had been in the back of our mind since the beginning. And so we're excited that this actually, this device right here uses the Helium IoT network. I see the logo. Yeah, yeah. It has the logo on there and sends vehicle data over the IoT network. Nice. From the Helium side, it's funny because people sort of are like, oh, where did Helium come from? It's like, well, it actually came from kind of a four-year-old semi-failing mesh wireless company that was trying to make the dream work, but then figured out if you bolt a token incentive to it. The dream's a lot easier to get to. It's funny, too, because Demo reminds me, back in the day, this must have been maybe 10 years ago, there's a company called Automatic, mm-hmm. I think it yeah. was, yeah. that had an OBD2 yep. plug-in port as well, and that would that they would Bluetooth to your phone, and it would help you like diagnose check engine light problems and right. things like that. But it just felt too early. The tech just like really wasn't there, and there wasn't really an incentive if your car was mostly working fine. Right. 
a lot of what we're doing is not breaking new ground. Yeah. It's it's even if you go back to the origin of all of this to Bitcoin, like a lot of the original technical pieces there were not new ground. They were just put together in a novel way. Yeah. And I think that that's very true of Demo, where, you know, OBD2 technology is a standard since 1996. Like these scanners exist and, and have existed and they'll continue on. What we're doing differently is ensuring that the platform itself is a lot more neutral and more open. And that's yeah. kind of what's plagued the auto space in particular hmm. um, and still is. You know, if you get a new Toyota or a Tesla, Tesla's maybe a little bit different. We can talk about them. But most of the automakers, if you get their app with one of their new cars, you're locked into whatever services they want to offer you. Yeah. And what we are very focused on is making that developer experience really, really seamless and open so that a person anywhere in the world can develop an application for any kind of car. So I think the obvious usage for something like this is like, oh, how much did I drive? Did I speed? Those sort of like classic questions a parent might want to ask yep. about their kids driving. Yep. Um, and then there's the the edge cases too, which are something like, oh, like a check engine light is on and it gives me a weird error code. What what does that thing even, even mean? Yeah. Um, but you guys do a lot more than just mm -hmm. that. Uh, and that's also a pretty narrow pitch for like what someone might be interested in. So yeah. what's kind of the full, you're talking about developing applications for cars. Like yeah. there's a big jump from a device that plugs into an OBD2 port yep. to actually something that runs on the car. So walk me through a little bit about what that vision is and what actually is in production today yeah. and what's kind of on the roadmap. Well, one way to think about it also, just going back to like, we're not breaking necessarily that much novel ground is there's basically been a device for almost every use case already. So insurance companies have made devices to yeah. kind of do, all right, let's get you a discount, see your driving behavior. There are devices that have been made for families and tracking kids. There are devices that people have made for performance vehicles, for the, you know, the kind of people that want to take right. their car to the track and see all the data about how it's performing. Yep. Um, there's maintenance-focused, you know, air code scanners. All those things exist, but there isn't a universal platform where you can actually take let's say, any of those data points for any of those use cases, attach it to the car, give the user full access, and basically allow them to mediate the sharing of where that data goes. Um, today, many of our customers are those parents. They mm -hmm. are people who want a little bit of a better understanding. In our app, we actually plug into OpenAI. So if you scan an error code, we give you a response from an AI-generated response about right. the error code to help you better understand it. But we, be, we think of basically two large categories for what the types of utility people are going to get out of Demo. One is going to be the sort of utilities, yeah, insurance, maintenance. What are you spending money on on your car today? Those are hopefully areas where data sharing can impact the experience. If you can share your error codes with the garage, you can skip the diagnostic trick. And sure. You go in a little bit more informed. The second big category is the stuff that hasn't been able to be built because this kind of an open platform doesn't exist. So there are social networks for vehicles. Lots of car clubs in the world. There's sure. some apps out there, some really, really amazing ones that have great followings, but they don't tie into the vehicle data itself. So you mm. have all these people talking about their cars, sharing information about their cars, but not getting any of the data out of it. Another big inspiration for us, several of my co-founders have been in the autonomous vehicle industry for years, is thinking about V2X applications. Yeah. So how is your car going to talk to the garage? Well, start with the problem that there's 30 major automakers, and then, you know, there's who knows how many different parking software systems, like how are you going to make all of those things interoperable? Well, you can try to integrate all the permutations or you have everyone build on a single shared layer about what's this vehicle, what's it capable of, how does it interact? 
Yeah. So between the utilities and then creating a platform where you can build sort of the next generation of auto and mobility services, um, we're really trying to attack both by creating that amazing developer platform. Yeah. And so this is where like, I'm curious on sort of the transition that's taking place now to electric vehicles, Yeah. right? Because I think all my life when I had a car, which I thankfully have not owned a car for a number of years now that I live in New York. We're here in New York, yeah. Yes. Um, but, you know, the internal combustion engine is a beast and lots yep. of things go wrong with it. And yep. I think people, you know, underestimate how many things go wrong with their cars. But the flip side of this is like when you get into an electric car space, the differences in performance, the differences in reliability between various automakers go down dramatically. And you're largely seeing like, Automakers have a bit of an existential crisis yeah. about like, oh man, like the cheapest car I have has functionally the same acceleration as the most expensive car I make yep. because they're now all an electric motor. Yeah. So when you're looking at that space, like how does the data that a consumer or a or a business or a garage might actually want about a car change? Yeah. I would say that there's that major EV transition. There's also the AV transition, of course. Most you know, cars that you buy today have a level two system incorporated. Obviously, Tesla's, yeah. you know, kind of the furthest out there pushing towards full self-driving. But, you know, at the very least, you're getting a pretty good lane keeping system for yeah. most modern cars. Um, most garages don't know how to recalibrate an ADAS system right. today. Right. <laughs> That's a new set of skills that the average technician hasn't had a chance to experience. Yeah. So what does change? Well, you're going to be a lot more concerned about your battery health. The battery is you know, about 40% of the cost of the car. And there's yeah. no analog to that today in an ICE vehicle. You're going to be a lot more cognizant of... Which is internal combustion engine. Yes, yeah, internal combustion. Yep. You're going to be a lot more cognizant of kind of how you're charging your vehicle, what kind of chargers are you using. Interestingly, we've done a little bit of... It's done some studies on sort of, you know, with the demo data itself. Yeah. And we found that most people would actually make a very seamless transition to an EV because if they have a charger installed at home, they would almost never be out of charge. Yeah. But you also have to think about those applications like Vita X. You know, what if you want to use your car as a backup battery for your house? Sure. Um, that's the thing that you would be great to monitor. Can you use it in a demand response situation in a virtual power plant? How do you network those elements together? There's a lot of interesting new applications that emerge when you have, you know, a lot of people using EVs. And it does have implications for garages, it has implications for roadside assistance, it has implications for the used car market. Yeah. All of these things, they have to think about, you know, if you imagine a Carvana or a Vroom, they have models for assessing the value, the residual value of a particular combustion engine car. Right. They have to rethink what those models are like for an EV. Yeah, I'm just laughing because there was that famous story about Carvana bought someone's like six-year-old Honda Fit uh -huh. for I think $3,000 more than they paid for it. Yeah, so, uh, the, the Those... markets need some improvement, but uh, but point taken. So the thing I'm curious on, though, is a lot of the reason a device like this has always been interesting and, and useful to folks is cars have not been computers. Right. Historically, a car has been built, I don't know, like something out of Battlestar Galactica. Like <laughs> Here's a bunch of discrete components. They don't talk to each other. There's yeah. no way like we're afraid of networking technology in cars. You know, famously, your infotainment system can do functionally nothing in terms of actually changing settings on the car yep. up until maybe it's very, a few years It's very ago. separated, yeah, yeah, actually from the from the main computers and the modules of the vehicle. Yeah, exactly. But in transitions to electric vehicles, yeah. we've seen car makers really rethink what that platform data is, and Tesla did a ton to push yep. that forwards. What data is even coming off 
that port on an electric car nowadays. Actually, Tesla has done probably the most interesting thing that they've done is they've opened up their developer platform in the last couple of months. And so they're providing hundreds of data points about the vehicle. And it's everything from passive data that you might consume. What's the, you know, state of charge of the battery? What's Mm -hmm. the status of the windows? You know, what's the tire pressure in the vehicle? A bunch of kind of stuff that's good to know as a consumer or good to track. And then you can actually access a bunch of commands. Like you can open the trunk in the front. You can, Mm. you know, access a bunch of other things about the vehicle. The ports themselves, it varies a lot from automaker to automaker. There is an upgrade coming to the OBD2 standard that's going to be really targeted towards EVs. So that that changes over time. But the things that you mostly care about, you know, the average person is going to care about is going to be, yeah, anything related to the battery health. How is it accepting charge? What's the voltage? What's the current in the battery? If you can, you want to get down to the individual fuel cell level in the battery. That way you can really assess how healthy it is. Yeah. And then you're going to probably care about things like how is that car being driven? Um, Sure. Depending on, you know, your use case and um, how often is the service taking place? I mean, there are some, you know, there's there's other components that matter in the EV as well. Tesla comes with a battery heater. So how is the battery heater performing? We do also think that a really key part that a lot of people don't think about yet is what software is the car running? Yeah. And that's a novel thing for people to like your car didn't get software updates in your garage. Right. Five years ago. It does today. And there have been instances, BMW and others, where a software update, you know, changes something about the car that users don't like. Rivian actually, like, bricked their infotainment system a few months ago. And um, it's just a novel um, thing for users to think about. One other little example from the software world of cars. I think it was a few months ago where, like, the Nissan APIs went down for a couple days. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who was using a Nissan-connected app got no data from their car. Couldn't lock and unlock the car. You know, you had the key, so you're fine, but like... Sure. The smart feature stopped. Right. The smart feature stopped. And that's kind of a wild thing that like you as a consumer might care about. What's the API uptime of Toyota? (laughs) Yeah. So like this is where I think the thesis that there's a lot of interesting data coming off of cars is a good one, right? I Mm -hmm. think there's there's all sorts of things you can do where like, what does range mean? Right. Yep. Like if you have sure. data from a thousand cars in a thousand different environments like that yeah. might actually tell you meaningful data. I guess the thing I'm getting at is historically car companies have not been interested in this space and, and suddenly they are. Right. And, and so the idea that like I'm going to plug a device into my car and like there's going to be, be data transmitted out of that. Mm-hmm. This feels like one of the areas where car companies are going to very quickly start moving into that space yeah. directly. Yep. Is your is your end goal to get your software stack actually running natively on a Tesla? Yes. Okay. So what's happening today, you know, I said Demo's building an open connected car platform. Every automaker is building their own connected car platform. Yeah. And it's very tightly gated. So uh, I have a Toyota and I get emails from Toyota that they've passed my data to Progressive. Mm -hmm. And Progressive is emailing me saying, hey, we think you're a safe driver. Come over to Progressive. I have Geico today. Right. Interesting. You might, one might feel, okay, you're sharing my data with somebody. I don't really like that. Right. Another response might be like, well, if you're going to share my data, give it to all the insurance companies. Give me the best damn price. Right. Um, You know, don't give it to one, like one or the other. (laughs) Like like I'm kind of on, on, in that sense. And so all of the automakers today are trying to build their own little walled garden and basically keep consumers within it. And Tesla kind of doing its own thing, we think going to lead the way again by opening up their APIs. And we think that the answer is 
instead of trying to develop all of their own applications so that you get the GM battery monitoring tool for your EV and then Ford has their own battery monitoring tool for their EVs, like you should allow any developer to build a battery monitoring tool for any EV. And that's our end goal where, you know, the automakers are happy because they can sell a connectivity subscription. Somebody has to pay for the data to flow over a helium network or over the wireless, you know, helium 5G one of these days. Somebody's got to pay for the data backhaul. But, you know, you as a car manufacturer shouldn't care whether that data is going to your app or Demo or eventually maybe a different client built on top of Demo. Right. And that to us is where we see the automakers going. And again, Tesla's already done that. Mm. You can use, there's six or seven apps I could name off the top of my head that utilize the Tesla API. You know, some are more data-driven, some like Standard Fleet are driving at fleets. Um, And I think Tesla has realized that having choice actually makes the car more valuable. Yeah. Like the iPhone is, or, you know, Android, like you, you like your device because you have access to an app store, not because the native apps that came with it are so magical. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I think DPIN is sort of a very, um, quiet, but successful category because attaching token incentives to things makes a lot of sense, right? Yep. We, we've had helium on the show before we've had hive mapper on the show before helium and building a decentralized wireless network. I think that one's a pretty easy case to look at it and see, okay, I see the, the value prop here. You look at something like HiveMapper and you're like, okay, I, I understand that like high frequency street view data yeah. is, is useful, yeah. right? And with that model, they're primarily selling to businesses and enterprises and you know geographic survey teams that need really high frequency data on a specific area. Yeah. So on the data generation side, model makes a ton of sense, mm-hmm. right? Lots of cars, lots of platforms, lots of questions that a consumer might want to know. Yeah. But questions a consumer might want to know are not necessarily the same thing as something a consumer wants to, to pay for. Yeah. So on the actual like data consumer side in terms yeah. of who's buying the data, who actually wants to, to look at this stuff, how does the data that's coming off of my car end up turning into something that's valuable for someone else, which in turn becomes someday valuable for me? Yeah. There's really two use cases. One that a, that a lot of people focus on is the aggregate data use case. And that's, you know, um, very applicable to to somebody like HiveMapper. It's applicable to a bunch of other industries as well. And we do sell some aggregate data and our users are compensated for that. Yeah. Um, so we have this pool and it's growing of vehicle data. You can do all kinds of things with it. We published, there's a cell coverage mapping case study that we did with a provider. We have folks that are interested in the mobility data, like where are cars driving and what are they visiting, the sites they're going to, where should we put an electric vehicle charger? So there's all kinds of things you can do in aggregate. But one of the things that we found, especially in the early days of Demo, as we started building this, talking to potentially data consumers, if you speak with an insurance company or a used car marketplace, one of these big data consumers, and you say, hey, we've got 100,000 cars connected, do you want the data from them? They say, okay, sure. We'll plug that into a model somewhere. We get lots of data from lots of sources. Sure. It goes into those feeds. If you say to them, hey, we have this specific car's data, like you know, Carvana, Vroom, take your pick. We know whether this car is in good shape or not. We can help you make a pricing decision on this particular car. That's immensely valuable to them because now it's not going into a model where there's still a range of uncertainty. They know decisively how much they want to pay for that car. Right. And so from our perspective, the great value in the demo platform is going to come from users being able to control that data and send it to the used car marketplace that they want to, the repair shop that they want to, the warranty provider they want to, the insurance company they want to. 
So how does you know the whole network benefit? Where yeah. does the demand come from? We are today working with the first of those companies to integrate into Demo APIs and actually pay for and pull that data on a case-by-case basis. Mm, so that when you go into the Demo mobile app in a couple months and go check out the um, used car warranty provider that we're bringing onto the platform, you're actually going to share some data with them. Right. Op- opt in. Yeah, like yeah. You don't have to. Sure. <laughs> you can get a quote without doing that, but it's going to help provide a more accurate quote. And nine times out of 10, you're going to benefit as a consumer. And so that company is going to pay for the API consumption in that specific use case, as opposed to the aggregate of like, hey, we want to consume all the data. Right. So that makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. I think something like 60 or 70 percent of cars on the road today are actually leased. Yeah. So in those models, like, is there a model for me to say, like, I'm probably only going to have this car three years. And when I sell it, I'm going to sell it back to the dealer who's kind of already got all this data, or at least they can run yep. some checks and they should if they're leasing it. In that sort of model, what's my incentive as a consumer from a financial standpoint to, like, put one of these in my car? Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things. One, you may want to just track your own like behavior, understand what's going on with the vehicle. You might yeah. have the parent use case where, you know, one of the things we built into the demo mobile app today and will be in other clients as well is native vehicle sharing. So you can actually, you know, with your family, say, track what's going on with the vehicle and yeah. who's driving it and where it's going and all those sorts of things. We actually do have a provider called LeaseEnd in the network, in the demo network, who might help you break your lease if the timing is right. Ah, I actually did that earlier this year myself. Actually, it was last year. And, and of course, many cars on the road, I think the average age of the car on the road today is like eight years in the U.S. Yeah. So, so these cars stay in circulation for a long time. Right. Um, it's that classic thing of BMW where they're like, yeah, we actually sell each car three right. times. And and to be clear, like, there may not be a purely financial incentive to yeah. using demo applications. Like, you, there's, we, we hope that if you're signing up with an insurance company, you're going to save some money. We hope that if you're going to use car marketplace, you're going to get a little bit more money. But there's also a world where you pay more money. And what would that look like? Well, mm. we have, we're speaking with companies that want to build social networks using the vehicle data. And you can have, like, a car club built on chain. Yeah. And uh, I mean, our cars are already minted as NFTs. Like you have an NFT community and now that's your car club. Sure. Um, you might pay more to access that. You might run a small fleet, a small business fleet, and you actually want to be on top of, you know, where your drivers are and what's going on in the vehicles. Maybe it's a taxi fleet or, or a yeah. Turo fleet. Um, actually, we have a lot of Turo hosts on the platform. So you might be leasing those mm. vehicles, but like you want to know what's going on when it's off lease. Sure. Or when it's, you know, rented out rather. So it may not be that there's like, we're going to save you money or help make you money. It might be that you are now just accessing applications and utilities that you didn't have access to before. Another really cool example, we have one today and are talking with several other companies, uh, carbon offsets for your vehicle. You can go and say, all right, whether it's an electric vehicle or an ICE vehicle, some electricity, some gas is being burned. There's some consumption. Go offset your carbon. And that's spending money. That's not saving money. But you're saving the environment a little bit. So yeah. there's all kinds of things that can be built on Demo. And some people are going to be the, the personas that say, hey, I want to save every dollar I can, however I can maximize my personal P&L, like yeah. great. And there's going to be others who say, wow, I'm joining because I want to access all these new applications that I'm spending money on. Totally. So I'm going to ask the most annoying question a blockchain show Let's do can it. ask. What's the component of this that needs the blockchain? Yeah. Right? Like if you're looking at Helium, you can see this sort of idea of like, the marginal cost to a consumer of like, I have a Helium mobile plan on my phone. Uh, it maps coverage yep. and it rewards me for mapping coverage. And the, the marginal cost for me is probably two or 3% of my battery every day. 
but it saves them hiring a person at $70 an hour to walk around with an antenna meter, right? Yeah. It, it, from that perspective, like the deep end side makes a ton of sense. Yep. It feels like a lot of the stuff you guys are doing is like, we're going to pull a bunch of data into, you know, one location and build one platform. Yep. And then people are going to come to that platform and they're going to buy data. They're going to have the option to, to remit data to insurance providers. Yeah. Like, that feels like that could be a company that doesn't actually use blockchain. So, so what was the reason to not build this as a traditional connected car company and yeah. instead actually like you could use helium and be a centralized company right, right. What, what was the connector here to say we actually need a token for this sure. project so there's two elements because there's the token element issuing you know you, you can actually build on a blockchain use it as a database without issuing your own token completely so yes we'll talk about both sides of that on the platform side itself we were staunch believers that if we're going to live in a world where we can actually upgrade the system the automotive industry, get automakers and insurance companies and repair shops and all of these players onto the same shared ledger. <laughs> Blockchain is the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, having a state machine for the real world is a pretty compelling idea. And, you know, we create a vehicle ID. It's an NFT. Most of the data is not stored on chain. We're, you know, starting to use you know, it's just too much data coming off a car to put it all on chain. We're starting to use decentralized storage for that. But if you want to track the provenance of the vehicle, do things like append verifiable credentials and have this shared state that you can always reference, have some privacy built in because you can mm -hmm. have sort of the translucency of the blockchain, then like blockchain is a no brainer in terms of how you actually create the vehicle identity. Yeah. On the token side, why did we create the demo token? Well, there's a couple of layers to that. One, of course, is the token incentive model proven to be such a great incentive for, um, you know, attracting early users and early adopters and getting people in the community invested in the success of the project. And I would say that when we launched the demo token, it was, I would say, kind of bland, <laughs> uh, cookie cutter, <laughs> like, you know, governance token. Yep. And, you know, you've seen how Helium, also another great inspiration for this, how the tokenomics have evolved there through years and years of, of like diligent community work. Yeah. But we're just big believers in the importance that open protocols uh, have a have an inherent means of monetization. Mm. You know, and, and Fred Wilson wrote a really interesting blog post about this the other day where, you know, it, it helps to create a more secure protocol when the protocol itself has a way to monetize and, and, and self-sustain versus relying on donations. So much of the demo protocol is already open source and it, it will continue to live on in that way. And we wanted to make sure that there was going to be a sustaining monetization. Yeah. And so over the long term, kind of what does that token minting look like? Like, are, are you expecting a world where folks actually who are engaging with like a, a data provider side, mm -hmm. are they effectively, they might pay in US dollars, but on the back end, you're basically buying tokens and you're burning tokens for them? Or, or what does that sort of look like? Again, borrowing the, the Helium yeah, playbook, yeah. <laughs> um, we're actually working with a, a developer right now to create the smart contracts for a demo data credit, um, yep. much the same way Helium has their data credit. And it's funny, people are like, wait, how did you build on Helium? You guys are on Polygon, they're on Solana. Like, how, how did you even do that? Like, payment rails are actually still up too. Like, yeah. We, yeah. We, paid, we paid Nova Labs in dollars, you know, with a credit card. And that's how we started on, on Helium. So yep. one day we'll all get around to fixing that. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, you know, I, I think that we all want to live in a world where any developer is going to show up and be ready to pay in demo to access the open source APIs. But you need to make it easier to develop. And yeah. the reality is most people want to still today 
put in a credit card, get a certain amount of data credits that they're going to know is going to give them a certain, you know, not have to worry about price fluctuations totally. and things like that. They're going to want to have the infrastructure really well provided for them. And, you know, there'll be a demo console and all those things. So or, you know, whether you're going back to the early days with consensus building Infura and all that infrastructure, or then yeah. looking at what Helium has done, like we're, we're believers in making it as easy as possible for developers to get started. It's good. Yeah. So data ownership is not a simple question when mm-hmm. it comes to this stuff. As you mentioned, there's companies like Tesla who have said, yeah, open port, open data standards, pull what you want. There's other companies that have said that this data is actually proprietary. And even though the data is about the car that you're driving, like most things in life are now governed by licensing agreements, right? We don't really think about like how, like all the software in that car is technically licensed. You don't actually, you may own the car, but you don't own the software and you don't necessarily own the right to data coming off of this. The most classic example of this is um, you go to a hospital, you sign all the paperwork for surgery, they take out your gallbladder, they own your gallbladder now. You can't, (laughs) you can't actually go to the hospital and be like, hey, can I... I'm a weirdo. Can I have this? I want to like. Put it I, on I my didn't shelf. know that, but uh, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> to- totally weird. Um, but like, so from this standpoint, yeah. like, what are the the rules and regulations and laws yeah. around this look like nowadays? Like, especially as it feels like all these automakers, as they move into EVs, they're desperately searching for new revenue lines because the service and maintenance component doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, you see car companies basically having this like pipe dream where they're going to take a thirty percent cut of all transactions that occur while you're in your self-driving car, like yep. on the data standpoint, where do they stand today? How are your conversations with automakers going? Like, yeah. I think that it's, it's interesting. One conversation I was having right before coming in is we were talking about the consumer perspective of data ownership. And yeah. just one note on that, and then I'll talk about the automakers. You realize that people, most people don't have strong psychological lines in their head. They're, they're not black and white. Like right. I'm for a data ownership, I'm not. Like we were talking about Tesla owners in particular, and we and some other folks on my team, we know a bunch of Tesla owners who are staunch, like, I want to own all my data. I hate Big Brother watching all this stuff. And he's like, well, like, Elon Musk is getting all your data in your yeah, Tesla. Like, and they're like, no, no, that's fine. And like, why? And like, well, he's building real cool shit with it. Right. And it's like, okay, people are willing to make a lot of exceptions in a lot of cases if they believe they're getting value back. And you talk to those users mm-hmm. and like, well, I'm going to get a software upgrade that's going to make my car better. Yeah. And like, if every person that wanted your data was like actually delivering and promising like promising and delivering on improvements in receiving your data all the time, I think most people would be like, yeah, sure, take my data. I'm going to get something nice back in a few months. Like, great. Uh, um, this was, yeah, there is this, God, I'm forgetting who, there's this amazing tweet a few months ago, which was, uh, say what you will, the authoritarian state has great UX. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I, that's a good line. I like that. Um, I'll have to like see the context of that. Um, I think they were talking about CBDCs. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the, um, the, the automakers, so there is a strong tailwind that's like protecting user ownership of this data, or at least user access to the data, which is the right to repair laws that are extant in m- yeah. many states now and, and, and expanding. And there has been recently just a ton of coverage, I would say on like how automakers are taking this data and, and often selling it to other providers without yeah. user knowledge. I think the markup had a really, really in-depth article two years ago. It's like 30 or 40 companies that are taking your auto data and selling it to all these places. So the automakers are caught between this rock and hard place. They've promised Wall Street like data and services and software revenue. 
they aren't super well positioned to deliver on that themselves. So they're sort of stuck in this like, well, we have to try to work with providers that are going to help deliver on that promise. And historically, to date, that has meant we're going to try and bundle up our data and sell it to other people who are going to try and monetize it. Um, That is a model that hasn't been working out great. Yeah. Um, They're now really trying to get into like, okay, well, we're going to develop our own apps and our own, you know, the GM app store and the Toyota app store and the Tesla app store. And what a nightmare for consumers it's going to be to have all those app stores. And so we believe that there's a ton of room for the value prop of like hook up to one single app store that works for all cars. and you know, there's plenty of space for the automakers to make money in there, whether it's whether it's providing the connectivity, um, providing the ability to actually interface with the vehicle itself, control the vehicle. Um, so there's a ton of room there for the automakers if they want to, you know, embrace the future of data ownership for consumers. Yeah. I'm kind of curious why you guys decided consumer was the first platform to go after. Like, yeah. I think I think if you look at like, fleet operations or agricultural operations or anything like that, the case for willingness to spend money is much higher than on the consumer end. Yeah. Are, are you guys looking to move into that space over time? We The fleet space was already pretty crowded in mm, terms of telematics devices and interfaces. Like there's just that that's been around a lot uh, yeah. for a long time. Interestingly, we've been seeing more and more fleets from the the smaller end of the spectrum, smaller, just smaller businesses. And most of those people discover us through their consumer preferences. Like they're a crypto person. They hear Mm. about us and like, oh, I also happen to like run a Turo business with 10 cars or whatever. We started with consumer because it was more open. Nobody had built the like, there is no universal car app. Like it's kind of wild to think about the opportunity. There's 2 billion cars in the world almost like Somebody even taking a small sliver of that can get, make a really nice business. Yeah. It's and also like, I mean, CarPlay and Android Auto are not good, but they're, they're worlds above what anything else is out there. Right. And so there's, you know, you think about like consumers are just kind of getting familiarized with the idea of a connected car through CarPlay and Android Auto through the OEM apps that people are getting nowadays. Um, they're realizing that those apps are at best. I mean, Tesla has a great app. Everyone will tell you that. But the rest of the apps out there are best mediocre, Yeah, in some cases bad. Um, and a lot of people we talked to are like, yeah, I didn't bother one second with the right. Land Rover app. Like people don't buy the it's Land Rover. Bad, for, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we think that there's a huge opportunity space. Like Demo works with any car. Yeah. Almost. I mean, we're still going back in time and getting older and older cars. Right. But there's a huge opportunity for somebody to build a phenomenal connected car experience just as like a general sort of maintenance companion and connection to the ecosystem. Yeah. And somebody's going to come along and build the demo app that's geared towards performance drivers. And um, we're actually speaking with several companies that are working to release the first fleet app on demo. Mm-hmm. Like we're not building yeah. those kinds of features into the demo mobile app today. We, you know, things that fleet providers often want, geofences, predictive maintenance. Some of that might be useful to consumers, but they're probably looking at it on a desktop. They probably have a couple of different roles yeah. and permissions that they want to set. So it's just a different set of product requirements that, that need to get built. And rather than, you know, our company, Digital Infrastructure Inc., building all of those, we are, that's the whole point of building the developer platforms. We can get right. other people building it. Yep. So um, you guys launched the project on Polygon. Mm-hmm. What was the sort of consideration to say yeah. that was probably the, the network to launch the thing on? Yeah. So this was two years ago. Yeah. There was... Sauna existed two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the, the things that, um, the things that w- drew us to Polygon were, were 
there's a couple of them. So one is, um, you know, just the amount of developer activity you know, at that time still heavily skewed towards EVM uh, and all of the governance stuff was ready to go. Mm. When you look at Open Zeppelin and Tally and Snapshot, like that stuff was ready. We could deploy it like, yeah. in a few clicks, genuinely. Um, and Polygon was fast enough and cheap enough and carbon neutral enough that we said, hey, this is, this is a great place to start. Yeah. And, you know, definitely have some shared alignment with their vision. I think most L1s or L2s will tell you your vision, their vision is like, hey, we want to onboard the masses to crypto. But like, hey, that's a, you know, that's a line that Polygon is known for and, and we certainly support. And it's been great. Like, we, you know, so far we, there's always the wallet hiccups. Like yeah. we're all waiting on account abstraction to get better. We're all waiting on, you know, just general ex- like abstractability of the blockchain bits to, to improve. Yeah. But like we've been really happy building on their platform so far. Nice. And going back, one thing I was really curious about. Yeah. You mentioned that a lot more of cars are able to actually receive commands from devices like Demo's device. How does that authentication work nowadays? Is it literally just anything you plug in there can now open the trunk? Like, what is the <laughs> sort of security profile of that look like? Because I actually wasn't aware until you mentioned it that those ports worked both directions. Oh, yeah, they do. Um, so our devices are read-only right now. Like, we have we have not opened up access to send commands to, yeah. to the device. Um, that, you know, is just, like, takes extra layers of security. Um, one thing that we've done unique in our hardware compared to all other OPD2 devices is that there is a secure element in oh, built okay. into our hardware, which acts, you know, it's an extra chip that acts yeah. to, to validate the data. Um, you know, I mean, from the CAN bus, and it varies by automaker, and it's changed over the years as well, because now cars are typically coming with a security gateway between the OBD2 port and, like, the modules that exist in the vehicles. Um, but we had one developer... He was working on a POC. Um, he was using a, a slightly different device um, than, than the ones we have, but he was working on a POC where he attached a microphone to the device and he could say, Fiat, roll down the windows. And it would roll down the windows, um, which is pretty <laughs> sweet. Um, the, the, the secured component to that is actually, it's, it's weird. It's like security through obscurity. And basically, yeah. like, you can't go and find the guide to your Toyota that lets you like, oh, all right, these are the commands that let me roll down the windows. And what has emerged over particularly the last five or six years is a community of CAN bus hackers, the CAN bus being the sure. system that the car communicates on, um, who are decoding these vehicles in their garages. And one of the coolest projects that has like, really generated a lot of activity in that regard is Kama AI. Mm. Um, so they have a aftermarket dash cam that you plug into your car. It actually plugs into the ADAS system, the um, Advanced Driver Assistance System. So it takes over the lane keeping and the cruise control from your car, and it uses its own algorithms to basically supercharge them. Wow. And so I have one in my car, in my Toyota. I had no idea that was legal. It's, uh, I actually don't know about the legality <laughs> of that project, but it's awesome. But it exists. And, but yeah. it exists. And I, I'm sure that the team there has looked into that and figured that out. Like, I just haven't myself done my research. Um, but yeah, I can sit on the highway in my Toyota and not touch the steering wheel for hours. And, um, you know, it, it's an incredible system. Um, and, and, you know, that's one application focused on self-driving. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's funny. The thing you're really making me think about is how underinvested digital security is for cars nowadays. Most because... every automaker has had an incident of some kind of like yeah. cars getting hacked. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there is the there is the fun viral moment of the Kia boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like 
That was hilarious. But yeah, it, it, it's really uh, or or that um, that hacker that hacked into was it a Jeep? Yeah, that years was ago like, and turned it off on the highway. One of the OG car yeah. hacks. Yeah, but it's kind of it's kind of funny to think about. Like now we're in a world. And this is like totally aside from what you guys mm-hmm. do, but like hypothetically, someone can get access to your car, put in one of these devices, and if you really can take over ATS, that means you can probably take over steering. Which yeah, is scary. Yeah, there's a lot of a, a lot of scary like elements to that and that's why we've been so careful in terms of like locking down the device and making sure that it's read only right now and you know building a ton of security and i'm we are excited about that world because there's a lot of cool opportunity where you get hackers who can you know like the the community member i was mentioning who's developing this like alexa for your car but interface with the car like that's really cool opportunity um but it it brings up a lot of scary activity and it's one of the reasons, it's actually another reason that we have thought about and felt blockchain was so appropriate for this use mm. case is that if you have a bunch of black boxes that nobody has access to and nobody can see into, I mean, you're already seeing this with Tesla a little bit and NHTSA, where yeah. like, do you hand over the crash data to the government and who has the rights to that? And it's one party, like what happens when a self-driving Ford hits a self-driving Toyota? And guess what? Like the components of the car that were making the decisions came from Bosch or from, you know, one of the other like tier one OEM parts suppliers. And like, how do you disentangle all of the decisions that went into that? And there needs to be a more robust and a more open layer that you can actually reverse engineer that. And that's where we think that like putting a lot of that information or at least tracking the history of it on the blockchain is is really, really critical. Yeah. I mean, you think uh, regulators have trouble with self-executing smart contracts. Just wait till two self-driving cars get in an accident. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a wild um, frontier when that starts to happen, or when these self-driving cars, you know, and if it's in a parking garage, and it's like, well, did the parking garage's sensor fail? How do you get the data out of the sensor from the parking garage that yeah. was supposed to be telling the car where the wall is? Like all of these things. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on Validated. Thank you for having me. It's been a really great conversation and I'm excited to see where the whole deep in space goes. Yeah, thanks. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.